she said, and it's the Assyrian New Year, 6,700 some odd years we've been around and now we've finally made it to the stage of the Goodman. Mm -hmm. It was in that moment, I was like, wow, you know, yeah, this does have some historical weight to it. And I, I really did feel honored and privileged to be a part of it with, with everyone else who was. everyone, Rhoda here. Welcome to episode 195 of the Assyrian Podcast. If you're a longtime listener, then you may remember episode 66 with Andrew Nostrati, at the time a council member in my hometown of Turlock, California. In that episode, I talked about the feeling of recognizing an Assyrian name when the movie credits roll up, or what it felt like to see a Lamassu in the corner of the screen when watching Aladdin. Well, a few months ago, my husband and I went to see a play in Detroit. A few moments into the play, an actor walked on stage, and for a moment, right before he put on his shirt, a Lamassu tattoo was visible on his arm. The play was Nora, written by the incredible Heather Rafu, and as much as we were fully absorbed in the play and in the acting, we also couldn't wait for the opportunity to perhaps meet and speak to this actor. Well, we got to do just that, and we came to learn that Matico David is not only an Assyrian, but he is the son of a deacon from Flint who is well-known and loved in the community. That night, he also told us that he had just gotten a part in Leolina, a play written by a former guest of the podcast, Martin Yusuf Zabari, from episode 178. Having seen Matt in two plays, I really wanted to pick his brain about acting, the stage, and how he got into it all. His acting work has taken him all around the world, and the grit, earnestness, and passion he brings with him to the stage makes him a real presence and a joy to watch. In this episode, we talk about Flint, how Matico got into acting, memorizing lines, and what's next for him. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. We love bringing you stories of Assyrians from around the world, and if you'd like to recommend our next guest, go to our website, and tell us whom we should speak to next. Don't forget to share, review, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. And now, without further ado, here's Matico David. Hi, Matt. Welcome <laughs> to the Assyrian Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with you growing up in Flint. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had several guests on the show who've been from Flint. And I said to you earlier, I have a soft spot in my heart for people from Flint because of Alice and Liz, who I know our listeners know about. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Flint much later than they did. Uh, what was Flint like when you were growing up there? What was it like? So I was, I was kind of growing up there in the 80s. And that was Really, that's when GM began kind of pulling out and taking jobs elsewhere. You know, my family uh, worked for General Motors. My dad worked uh, at Buick City. Growing up there, I got to kind of recall like the heyday. A very large middle class society. Everybody was kind of doing all right. And then uh, slowly but surely, tens of thousands and jobs left. And it affected hundreds of thousands of people and, you know, kind of decimated the city a little bit. So I kind of saw that happen as well. What memories uh, do you have of 
Assyrians influence, if any? So I grew up going to the Assyrian church in Flint on the east side. And yeah, some of my earliest memories of life are, are there. As far as I can remember, it was a fairly small parish, especially compared to some of the other churches I've been to. Um, certainly here in Detroit, but also Modesto, Los Angeles that I've been to. In fact, like when I was growing up, there wasn't, uh, we didn't have a full-time priest. It was just Shema Shazayah, I think, was, was having services. Those are some of my earliest, earliest memories of Assyrians being at the church there. Also growing up, the, the community, the Assyrian community in Flint was larger. There were a lot more functions, social get-togethers, celebrations, things like that. So yeah, there was, there was much more of a social aspect to it when I was a kid than, than there is now. When you were going to school, like elementary, middle, high school, were you into acting at all at that young of an age? No, I wasn't. I wasn't into it at all, actually. Growing up, I grew up playing a lot of football. I have a couple older cousins who, they're like a year apart, a couple brothers. They're, they're nine and ten years older than me, and they've always kind of been like my, my older brothers. We went to the same schools. We grew up a couple miles apart. My dad and their dad are super tight. I mean, I just, everything they did, I wanted to do, you know, so... They were messing around in Golden Gloves boxing when I was like three, four, five. So, of course, I wanted to box. One of my cousins got into football pretty heavily and was, was pretty good at it. And so I started playing football. Those are the things I, you know, wanted to do and fantasized about growing up. I didn't get into acting really until I was in college. When, that's, that's really when I actually gave it any kind of strong consideration. There used to be a pretty reputable youth theater in Flint. Over the summer, my mom threw me in a couple acting classes there back in the day. You Do you know? know why? Like, What made her think, okay, Look, this might yeah, be something? Looking back at it now, probably to get me out of the house. Okay. You know? um, I, just, I just need a break from this kid. But I, and you know what? She, both my parents have always been really, really encouraging uh, to just... Just try, just try anything. I mean, really, really encouraging of new experiences. Whatever I could do as a kid, they were, they were very, very positive and very, very encouraging. So, I mean, I, I did take maybe one or two summers for a, a week or whatever camp or whatever they offered, but I never really, as far as I can remember, it was like in the way of playing football, and I certainly didn't want to tell anybody about it, <laughs> sure. you know? Uh, stereotypical growing up it wasn't until really I was a sophomore in college and actually it was like the second acting class I took really that I was like oh man this is, I, I think I think I see what this is now I'm starting to understand what this is and I think uh, I think it's for me and I'm for it do you remember the moment or role or like what is it that you read or reacted to that made you have that realization or did it just happen over time you know probably early on a couple things really let's see at the end of my like freshman year of college i think i was just into like uh, general general business studies trying to fill, fulfill an elective intro to music intro to theater or intro to art um looking back i'm surprised i didn't take intro to music now but for whatever reason i took intro to theater I didn't even know theater was a thing you could study. I took this intro to theater class and <clears throat> we were assigned a play to read. And I'd always been 
a big fan of movies, like a lot of people growing up. And it, and my cousins who I, I looked up to so much, especially my older cousin, he went, when he graduated, got out of school, he went into the Navy. His younger brother uh, was still kicking around. He would always take me to movies. I mean, we saw tons of movies. It wasn't, but... In my recollection, it was every weekend, you know what I mean? <laughs> and there's still, to this day, there's still huge movie fans, and a lot, of my, a lot of my family is. And we were always playing the name that actor game, you know? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? But anyway, I was, a, I was a freshman in college, and I think because I loved movies, I think that's why I took the intro to theater class. We were assigned a play to read, and it was uh, Fool for Love by Sam Shepard. That was the first time I ever sat down and read anything in like one shot front to back straight through i didn't i didn't know what a play was it was very weird to me that the it was like longer than a magazine article but shorter than a book so i like i felt like i could handle it you know and the, just the 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 way it was written specifically for people to perform that speaks to the reader in terms of developing characters in your mind. I mean, it just just grabbed me, and I it was the first time I'd I'd read anything like that. So that was that was like really really interesting to me. And I remember asking the professor, I was like, "Where do you study theater, or what is this?" And this is when you you went yeah, to U of M Flint. That's right. Okay. That's what I was going to U of M Flint at this time. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm teaching the intro to acting class next next semester, beginning of next year, and I'm teaching a voice and movement class. I'm teaching them both. You seem like you're interested. Why don't you, why don't you take my classes and see if it's for you? And I said, okay. And I was like, how do, how do I do that? And he's like, he's like who's your advisor and I said uh I, you know I don't know I'm just in business right now you know he's like all right go to business go get your file bring it down I'll be your advisor I'll help you out I was like okay great and I thought that was cool because somebody was giving me a hand and I, you know I didn't feel like I was uh I, it was like my first year of college man I was my head was spinning I didn't know sure. what was what from from anything <laughs> so he signs me up for his classes I go away for the summer and watch a bunch of movies, go hang out with my cousin in New York and fancy what it would be like to, to live in New York and be a writer or an actor or any of this. I already started dreaming. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally, for sure. I came back after that summer, my second year of college, and I started taking these classes, intro to acting and voice and movement. And there's another teacher. And it's like, okay, I don't really know anybody in these classes anyway. Everybody seems to know each other. I don't know anybody. Naturally a little bit uh, shy anyway. So it took about maybe three weeks or so. I finally went up to the professor and I was like, so, hi, my name's Matt. Is John Bell around, the instructor? Because uh, he, he signed me up for these. And I, the instructor was like, no, no, John doesn't teach here anymore. He moved on. <laughs> so I was like, oh, man. So I went to the theater department, I walked in, I was like, uh, to the secretary, I was like, hi, my name's Matt David, um, John Bell was my advisor, you know, I wonder if I could get a little help here, and the secretary's like, who are you? And she actually introduced me to a woman named Carolyn Gillespie, who was the head of the department at the time, who then did become my advisor, and really one of the first and most influential instructors I've, I've ever had. And 
it was in her class, the first time I took her acting class, which was a semester later, that she she started, it was an exercise, really. It's It was very early on in class, and the, the assignment was to bring in an object and talk about it. Very simple. And it was just utterly fascinating to me. Some people forgot some people would forgot and then would try to make up their objects. Some people would bring in something really deeply personal. I think I remember what I brought in. I'm not exactly sure, but I think I remember at the time that first that first time around. But I'm not, and I'm thinking, I'm, I just try, remember thinking to myself like, what does this have to do with acting? But I don't know the whole the whole nature of it and her instruction and the way she talked about acting and art man it just kind of like hit me right in the face and it just like seemed like the most important thing in the world (laughs) you know the most life-changing thing one could be a part of and so i was in i'm thinking about you sitting down and reading that play Mm -hmm. and you saying like that was the first time i read something Mm. cover to cover Mm -hmm. in one sitting what i find so interesting about reading a play versus reading a book Mm -hmm. is that there are like the stage directions are short mm-hmm. and it's just about the dialogue basically mm-hmm. and you get these little notes here and there about possibly what the room looks like or the silence or whatever it might be mm-hmm. and you get to make up so much of that in your head mm-hmm. just from what the people in that scene are saying to each other Whereas like works of fiction sort of fill in those gaps. They describe what the room looks like or if two people are walking, what the sound might be. But you don't get that in a play. And I'm thinking about the difference in both of those and how I wonder if some people find reading a script or a a play more freeing because you have the opportunity to create something in your head or if it's harder for some people because they haven't exercised the part of their brain where they Mm. can create that. Mm. And I wonder how that experience was for you reading it. Like, do you remember how you felt about everything that was happening and just reading the lines of dialogue? Man, that's really interesting. I mean, I think I've, I think I immediately felt like I I, I was a part of it Mm -hmm. and like engaged with it. Like that was, the, that was its purpose, mm. whereas probably with maybe reading a, a book or a story or something I was assigned in school, that felt very distant to me. And I, but this this felt very the nature of it. Just just looking at the words and the way you see, as you're talking about the dialogue written out and the stage directions written out, just the nature of the way it looks on the mm. page is really engaging and it grabs you. And also that story was like, you're familiar with that or even any of Sam Shepard's stuff. It's that story and his work is really always since then and, you know, forever have kind of gravitated towards. I mean, it's it's really visceral. It's really raw and guttural, a little dirty, a little banged up, entirely American, entirely poetic i mean it is it and my favorite writers and playwrights and stories that i've read and have been privileged to be a part of that's i think that is a through line that they've all had 
I can recognize that now, that pattern now, but that's that's what I remember about that. It was so raw and so guttural and at the same time like from the stars, you know. I don't know why all of this made me think of Death of a Salesman. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cuz I feel like that has some of those very same elements. For sure. Yeah. Arthur Miller's work. Do you remember then how you ended up as like your first time actually acting in a play? What did you end up in a play while you were in school? How well, how was the first time like? So yeah, U of M Flint, University of Michigan Flint, where I was going to school. They they did have a theater department, and so after that second semester, that class with Carolyn Gillespie, the the head of the department, I really started to get an understanding of, I guess, art acting, and I didn't know. I really didn't know it was a thing you could study certainly not a thing you could study in Michigan let alone here in Flint it was as foreign to me as the moon once I realized you could actually study it I started to lean into it a little bit it was a really interesting time at that time because they had a main stage theater and they also had a black box theater and there was just this this vibe around the the theater department there were students who were writing plays. There were students that were directing plays. There were students that were, you know, they were casting the plays. I mean, the department really let the students really lean into the black box space as much as they wanted to. They gave the students a lot of opportunity. And a lot of people who have since become my friends had been doing that. And so I think after the, and a lot of that stuff happened over the summer, as I recall. And so that summer rolled around and I think I, I might have auditioned for my first play or even auditioned at the end of that semester, auditioned for my first play. And I think that's what it was actually. Carolyn was directing a play and it was a big cast, a neo-Greek classical okay. something. And but. <laughs> They needed plenty of chorus members, you know, okay. and um, don't say much. You look like you can grow a beard. You're in. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> and and um, so that was my first time on stage. But over that summer, it was it was really, well, I think what hooked me was uh, working with a lot of the other students, d- developing this, this work on our own, new work on our own. A friend of mine who, who's, who's become a playwright, Sean Michael Welch, was like writing these really gripping stories my friend greg was directing them all of our friends were in them i don't it and it was just everybody was pissed off at the same thing <laughs> you know it was just that kind of that early early 20s sure. angst it felt very punk rock to me yeah. and so i really really leaned into it and and then i think coming back that the the next year i think they were they were doing a production of uh Grapes of Wrath, main stage production of Grapes of Wrath. I don't know how this is going to go, but man, I'd really like to, I think I'd really like to play this part, Tom Joad, I think right now, I'm, I kind of kind of understand it. And uh, lo and behold, I got it. And like, I think that's when I started considering maybe this might be something I have some kind of uh, aptitude for, you know, that, so like all of those things all together uh, started, started turning my mind toward it. Were your parents supportive of you pursuing this path for yourself? Always. 
always crazy supportive. I did not have the stereotypical lawyer, doctor, steady job, stability. I mean, believe me, that was all. They, they, have, <laughs> they have wished and hoped and prayed for all of that, I, I, um, surely. But no, it was both my family. My parents came from big families. And my dad, I think, started working at like 12, 13 in Iraq. He was like peddling machine parts from one building to the next so the guy could weld them. That's the way it went. And then uh, kept working. And my mom was out of the house at 17 and had to work. And if she was ever going to go to um, school beyond high school, it was going to be a grind, which, which she did. She did while I was growing up. Um, me and my sister, while we were growing up, she, she went back and um, actually got her degree and became a teacher. But my parents, they emphasized education. It was an opportunity that my dad didn't have so much. That's what he stressed upon me. Do not waste this opportunity. You've got the opportunity to get educated. Get educated. They did a very good job of like keeping me out of the shop. Would not let me follow down that path. So I, I knew that wasn't going to be a route from very early on. As long as I was educating myself, as long as I was in college and going after something that I was really passionate about, because that was the other thing. I think they stressed upon me that just the fragile nature of of life, the joy of doing something, the joy of, of pursuing your passion and uh, living that and so, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's really what drove me. And so they've always been encouraging. I think they've seen 99% of everything I've always been in. And they've seen me crash and burn multiple times and hit rock bottom. They've never, they've maybe wavered with me, but they, <laughs> never, they never was like, hey, you know, time to hang up your yeah. gloves. You know what I mean? So they've been completely supportive and encouraging and I don't think I don't think I would have stuck with it for as long as I have had I not had that kind of support and belief and and known about about their situation yeah. and and feeling like it was a privilege to be able to, to try and do this what has it been like for them to see you play different roles on stage like they know you as their son and they have a certain image of you and then for you to like become sometimes a completely different person on stage what's that like for them man <laughs> i don't know i don't know that i don't know necessarily what is what is uh like for them they've never they've never treated me any differently <laughs> outside of outside of the theater off stage they've never after a show never treated me any, any differently than as if I was I was their son. They're sometimes maybe surprised, you know, a little bit, and probably probably less surprised as <laughs> uh, at times than uh, than they you know maybe they want to admit. But I'm, from from the beginning, like from some of my earliest parts, I've had to play some kind of gnarly characters. So I think that's kind of over time. It's that kind of helped right off the bat that's the character this is me and uh to say some crazy things do some crazy things but at the end of the day i'm their son yep. and i think that's that's all right with them <laughs> so you play in grapes of wrath what 
are some work that you did, uh, works that you did after that, um, that kind of kept you on this path? Like, okay, no, this is, this really is it for me. Mm. While I was in college, that was a, that was a big one. And then we did some Tennessee Williams. It was my, my first crack at Streetcar Named Desire, mm-hmm. which I'd, I'd later done, uh, had the opportunity to do professionally later on down the road. But again, that was, so now I'm reading stuff by Steinbeck and stuff by Tennessee Williams. And again, these very American voices, very guttural kind of street stories with this layer of heightened poetry and sensibilities. Certainly a play, uh, Golden Boy, we did. Uh, I think was the last show I did there. When I when I was in college, and that was that was an Odette's play. Clifford Odette's was one of the the writers that came out of the 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 group theater, and that was a play about a young guy who he was a very talented violinist, but he wanted to kind of get out in the world and explore things a little bit more, and had a penchant for boxing. He became a prize fighter, and a whole lot of uh, angst and turmoil, and dichotomy between the two worlds within himself, and. It's a great play, but I remember that one. That was like, I had messed around in boxing gyms. I grew up a little bit while my cousins were boxing, watching them. And even my dad started training with them. So like, I always wanted to be a boxer, but my dad never would let me. And I mean, I pestered him and pestered him, but he held tight. And so the day after I graduated high school, I walked into a boxing gym, started <laughs> messing around. Um, so I had a little bit of sensibility about the physicality of that character. I spent the summer kind of preparing myself for the auditions and he was also a violinist so I started working a little bit with this girl in the department who played the violin and so it was maybe the first time I started I began starting to go starting to see how deep I could go into my research and start start to go outside that were not like immediately in front of me they were still obviously close you know um but and i the, the nature of i think character development on that play was a, a little bit of another step for me and i kind of started like new level of love that i that i started to develop for uh the work for the art how do you mm-hmm. prepare to play mm. any of the characters that you have mm. so that like when the audience meets them, they believe mm-hmm. that that's a real character. Mm-hmm. Because it, in some ways it feels like if you haven't done the work of like preparing mm-hmm. to develop that character for yourself, then what we see mm-hmm. on stage is like not this fully developed mm-hmm. character. And then you mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time yeah. to build that character, you know, during the course of the play. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know, I think you've, I think you've really nailed it. I mean, I think there are different avenues to developing a character, but if you if you don't believe it fully, then yeah, I, I don't think you can expect anybody else to believe it. And believing it 100% is, I think, even different than you know trying to convince yourself. Maybe closer, but it's not quite the same thing. It's maybe like the difference between I don't know being brave and being fearless or something. Mm-hmm. And I think. For me, and can only speak the way I go about it, um, and what I've learned, the process of 
building a character and kind of the the way the craft is it's you know it's, it's just different for everyone but yeah i've i've definitely 100% have to uh i have to believe that i'm the guy and because i know that you know everybody else that ultimately that's that's all that matters when you're up there does everybody believe you are the guy that you say you are they believe you exist in the world that the the play is creating can you be in this story is it believable are you believable and i think a lot of the work is just kind of exercising out all the doubts and the process of convincing yourself that yeah you are and yeah you can i think that's a lot of the work and i think whatever it takes to do that i i say that meaning because it could be different it's different rule to rule but i think that in in general that that is the maybe the biggest the most important thing i the reason why i thought about that is because you said you know you talk to someone who played the violin mm. you know like all of those things matter like who that character is outside of the scope of the play and the story that someone's about to see that's a real person and there's a whole story all of the things we don't see about them their yeah. backstory yeah. Um, and in some ways you have to get in that character's mind and life even beyond what anybody else sees in order to become believable um, mm -hmm. for yourself and others mm -hmm. so that's really interesting i think the nature of like even creating a, a play in its entirety the nature of being in the rehearsal room i mean i think um kind of to your point even what's what doesn't stick even the stuff that gets thrown away is all part of the process and i think it all exists on stage it all makes its way into the, the development of the, the 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 final show. I I mean I think everything that happens in the rehearsal room. I think it's it's a finite period of time and it's kind of a sacred space. And from day one door open to the last time you get to rehearse with everybody and the director, whether someone was late or spilled coffee all over your script or all of that stuff is in there that's the way that's the way i i kind of believe i'm curious about the whole process of being a part of a play from the audition and casting to the rehearsal yeah. and to the time the show opens and closes so I'm wondering if you can sort of take us through that. Um, mm -hmm. What is the audition process like? You Earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that you have a tape, although I'm, mm -hmm. I imagine it's not actually a tape. <laughs> it's like not a VHS tape. Oh, no, no. <laughs> but um, is that something that you, like there's one that you have that's ready to send whenever mm. you see a play that you come across or someone tells you about or is it a new thing that you make for each play generally it's a new thing you make for each play each movie mm -hmm. each tv show you get um an audition scene they and they call them sides and they're just little little pieces of the script for whatever character you're reading for this is usually a scene or the scene however big or small that they're kind of pushing a lot of weight you know and so that's generally what you'll get technology being what it is today you're able to record that scene and send it digitally to 
the people who are casting the show, the casting directors, who are working in concert with the producers and the writer and the director and all having dialogue. And from like first round of auditions, they'll have what's called callbacks. And that's oftentimes a process then where, and again, you can, I've, I've done this in the room live and I've done this o- over Zoom. Then you are meeting with the director, sometimes the director and the writer, sometimes the director, the writer and the producers. A lot of time there's another actor there as well who will read scenes with you. And this time around, it's an opportunity for the director to kind of work with you a little bit. They, I'm sure, have an idea based on your original audition. In my experience, this is kind of a feeling out process. Can you take direction? Can you change? Can you yeah how yeah exactly absolutely Uh, can you adapt we're having a little bit of small talk are you somebody that I want to be around for a very long 60 70 hours of my week for a month or longer on end um you know somebody who's going to work well with others be in the room with others be part of the team that's really what productions that have been a part of that's really what they become there it's it's just a giant group effort team effort and you know i where the 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 whole oh man i'm going to mess this up well, the expression what is it? the the this, the whole is greater than some of its parts i oh, think you know yes, okay. where the, where everybody <laughs> yeah. you know it's like voltron when all yeah. the lions come together <laughs> exactly. the the one big giant awesome robot um <laughs> But that's that's what it's like, and they're seeing if are you going to be able to be part of this particular group, and then you might have another callback where you might actually be reading this time with someone who's cast in the show, and now they're they're trying to see okay how can we get a better sense of how these people really would interplay in chemistry. Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure, with each other. And there can be more. I mean, I know there have been more, many rounds. I think I've heard of people, uh, especially for film and especially for TV, where the financial stakes can be tremendous. Mm-hmm. Having like upwards of seven, eight, nine uh, additions wow. and callbacks. Yeah. What's the most number you've had to do? The most number I've had to do. I'm at, I think, three. Okay. Yeah, I think three. And... I wonder also if that's all of those give you an opportunity, not just the director and the all the directors and the writers to decide if you're right for them, but for you to decide if they're right for you. Like they might think, yeah, this works, but you might not feel like the vibe is there for you. Is that an opportunity for you too? That happens sometimes, for sure. Most of the time, yeah, I think most of the time I'm really responding to the mm. the, the work, the play, sure. the the vast majority of the time I'm you know excited and like yeah. full tilt. I think there was one I, I I can't remember one audition in particular where oh man I could see the director just kind of man not not for we were not it was nothing antagonistic or nothing but we just weren't speaking the same language mm. and I was trying mm-hmm. I was trying. And I could just see, I could just kind of see the, on the look on her face I w- that I, w- I just wasn't quite getting it, and I, I wasn't quite interpreting her direction well either. And mm-hmm. I could, 
and I could feel it and I'm sure that I started pulling away and tightening up and so it's a dance yeah yeah (laughs) for sure for sure for sure yeah so once you do get the role and you are cast the play doesn't start the next day there's still plenty of work to do (laughs) um so what is that rehearsal process like and once they've cast the entire um show what happens then depending on how much time between the you get the the part and when you're going to go into rehearsals that's for me that's that's the time where i feel like the majority of homework that i'm going to that i'm going to be able to do on my own exploration research development that time is filled up with with that when you get into the rehearsal room I wanted to say fast-paced, but I don't know if that's quite... I think it's more full. It's just very full. Everybody's... There's a finite period of time, and everybody is trying their best to develop and create, especially on a new work where the lines and scenes are changing. You know, you really want to stay on top of that. I've had a chance to work out of more than a handful of uh, world premieres at this point, and and so I, I know that... You know, once we get into the rehearsal process, up through previews, things can be changing. So character development and my familiarity with the script, like I, I want those things to be, I want to know them so well that I can forget them. Be- because also, and that also means being very, very fluid and adaptable. That's how it kind of uh, works for me. If I'm not thinking about it, wondering about it, questioning about it, then I'm able to move a different direction easily. I'm not stopping to ask the director a whole bunch of questions, which which I I try not to do. Um, Of course, there's always dialogue and exploration and co-creation. That's part of the fun. But it's more a matter of, man, what did we do today? Let me let me lock that in as best I can tonight. Now that I'm out of rehearsal, because tomorrow it's going to be, it might be new in terms of scenes or whatever again, but also it's still our time to play and I, I want it to be fresh. Let me lock it in as much as I can so I can forget about it so it can be uh, fresh the next day. So the rehearsal time is really, it's a very full, full time. And that's for me, I've, I've that's been anywhere from three weeks to eight weeks on, on a, that I've been a part of of those processes do you how do you go about memorizing all your lines that seems hard i think reading and rereading and rereading i think that's how it happens just reading it over and over and over and i and not necessarily even with the intent to memorize because that's Mm -hmm. the other thing that kind of pressure can that that's kind of no fun either I spent about four years or so working at a theater here in Michigan called the, the Purple Rose. And one of the things that they emphasized right off the bat was kind of being off book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe a, 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 a Meisner thing as well. At least I've read his book a couple of times. That's the impression that I get, just being that familiar with the lines so that you can get beyond the lines. Mm-hmm. And I think... The more you do it, you you develop certain like techniques to memorization. It does get better the more you, you, you practice it. Little cues start popping up, but there's no way around going over the necessary times that it takes. And the better understanding you have of a story, just like I, I also feel like if it's, you know, if you can memorize a song, sure. I think you can 
the way a song sticks. It sticks kind of emotionally. And uh, I think a scene sticks kind of, for me in a way, the same way. And then it, you just st start stringing them together. Have you heard of a book called Moonwalking with Einstein? No. So what I remember most about that book is like ways of remembering things. Mm -hmm. And basically he talks about people who count cards, for example. Mm -hmm. The way they can remember things. Or people who are really good at remembering someone's birthday or their phone number. It's not because they're just remembering the birthday and the phone number. It's because they create a story in yeah. their head uh -huh. of like, I'll tell someone. We actually know someone like this who like, he'll meet you once. You tell him your, when your birthday is and then he can see you five months later and he'll remember when your birthday is. Wow. It's because he immediately takes that and associates it with a story. So I once told him my birthday is March 6th. And so now he's like, well, my dad's birthday is in March, but his birthday is March 3rd. You're three days after. So that's the story in his head. But I started thinking of this book because he basically talks about like, and you said something about cues that like things become a cue. And so the whole book is about how to like remember things better. Mm. And it's about just creating a story to be able to remember things. It's incredible. No, that, that makes so much sense to me. Mm. I mean, that's when you start understanding the story better and better and better and understanding your role in it and understanding everybody else's because mm -hmm. you're understanding yourself in relation to them the lines start start coming because the play gets broken down into scenes mm -hmm. <clears throat> and really into emotional beats and it 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 just gets whittled down, whittled down, whittled down into that. And, and thinking about a beat is much easier to think about in terms of memorization. And that's really, that's really what you're doing, you know, kind of playing beat to beat, beat to beat. And I guess the, uh, it goes back to what we were saying about believ believability because the words coming out of your mouth, if you know that character so well, it's just the thing that that character would say in the moment because you know that story and you know that character so well that like all of it starts to come together and make sense in a really tight, well-written play. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you, the other thing is, as soon as you get in the room with the other, with the other mm -hmm. actors, how they are responding and you're, you're getting to know them and then you're, you are responding mm -hmm. off of them. Yeah. And it's not just because they said a cue line. It's sure. you've already you've already got that that part kind of covered. But then your cue is them. Yeah. Your 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 part is in them. Yeah. You know? And the other way around, yeah, for sure. you are That's you right. are doing the same thing for them. That's right. Have you ever forgotten a line on stage? Oh man, sadly, yes. <laughs> what did you do? Sure. How do you recover? That's where you put your complete trust and faith mm. and everything else in the other actors and that's who you want to be for them too mm -hmm. i recall a line you know i forgot it i skipped it in a play one time and uh, i was working with a guy who's a good friend of mine and we'd worked together a number of times and we're pretty familiar with each other just the way he looked at me i knew mm, let me i did something i did something off here let me think and I, oh yeah, okay, I forgot that line. Yup, that's that's information. I need to I need to work it back in. Ah. Uh. And and I came back to it. So you trust, you totally trust in 
the, and you build that trust through the process. You trust in the other actors that they've got you, that you can you can go someplace. They're gonna go with you, mm-hmm. and vice versa. You provide that for them. I, I think that's kind of a, a beautiful relationship. It's a, a privilege to work that way and uh, letting letting somebody know you got them. In any kind of relationship, there's sometimes like in your friendships or just like romantic relationships where you can like look at someone and they know exactly what you mean and so you are so intimately involved with these actors and the work that you're doing that you need to have that inside language to let each other know um, if something goes awry for sure you're tuned in you're tuned in with each other Yeah. yeah absolutely your work has taken you all over the place in the country. Um, you said you've done some work in San Francisco and DC and other places. What has been your favorite place to perform? Oh man, I promise I'm I'm not I'm not <laughs> definitely not evading. Honestly, each experience because it's new. I'm in a new place with a new play, new cast. It's it really honestly is. It's hard to enjoy and love one more than the other. Some some very few and far between and rare have I ever been a part of something that was like a bummer <laughs> you know but but in terms in terms of something that playing at playwrights horizons in new york for the first time that that for me it was another level up getting to do the the play was nura uh written by heather raffo it was a play that uh we had done in D.C. and Abu Dhabi prior. And it was my first play in New York at a theater, you know, with that kind of reputation. Uh, Playwrights Horizons is, is, is really well known for championing new authors, new works. They've got a, a storied history for, for doing that. And Heather got her play there. And, it, you know, it was about a Chaldean Im- immigrant family in America. And that was that was yeah it was a, that was a very special time. I've I've been able to do another show there as well. Recently played um, at the Goodman in Chicago, and being from the Midwest, I mean the Goodman is I mean that's pretty much the first one of the first theaters you hear about growing up uh, in, in in the Midwest if you're if you're into theater at all. But um, but yeah, uh, but also San Francisco as you know. Marin, I mean, how can you not love being, you know, in that part of the country? San Diego is an amazing part of the country. So they were all each experience, even though some of them were the same play, they were different casts, different directors. Each one is so different unto itself. Um, I've I've been fortunate in every regard, but um, but I would say that one in New York will, will always be quite memorable. Yeah, for sure. I've had a chance to see you in Nura, uh, here in Detroit, and in Leolina at the Goodman, which was written by uh, Martin Zabari, who was previously on the podcast. You said something earlier about being in those two rooms and starting to connect with the people in those rooms on a different level, not just as a community of artists and actors, but people whose backgrounds Mm. brought you together Mm -hmm. um, in that way. 
Can you speak a little bit more about what that was like for you? Uh, Nora in general, which is a play, I gotta get my my timeline right here. It's a play that I started be, I started kind of auditioning for, became aware of back in, I think it was 2017, but 2018, we world premiered it. This is a play by, again, by uh, Heather Raffle. Um, in 2019, we, we, we were, yeah, end of 2018, we were in New York. And 2019, it started getting some regional attention. And since then, I had a chance to work on that play a few more times. That, But that's the play that I've really had an opportunity to start working with and meeting other Middle Eastern artists, Middle Eastern theater artists. And so that that play and Heather in general, just being who she is, that was kind of my introduction into this community. We got a chance to do that play, Nora, in Detroit not that not that long ago last year. And Heather was reprising the role. And in Detroit, I got the opportunity to be in the room with not only Heather, who's, who's Chaldean, but also a, a couple other Chaldean artists, as well as uh, other artists from different parts of backgrounds from different parts of the Middle East. But it was the first time I'd I'd been around, you know, that many other people in the theater, other actors, stage managers, artists who I identified as Chaldean. And it was an opportunity to, it was just another opportunity to be like, oh, you know, we have... Yes, we all have a kind of a similar bond, but uh, we got a little something a little more similar here. And that, it's it's just that kind of vibe in the room, that kind of comfort level, there's something almost familial mm-hmm. there. And at the same time we were doing the show, I was I began auditioning for Martin Zabari's play, Leilina at the Goodman. Martin is a Syrian, and I was kind of sharing that experience a little bit with uh, my friends uh, in the cast and stage management uh, in Detroit, and then getting into the, getting to Chicago, getting into the room and running, finally meeting Martin in, uh, in person. Another actress, Atra Azdu, who's a Syrian, and having you know one of the understudies was a Syrian. Another one of the understudies was Chaldean, and having there was a, another Syrian working in the marketing marketing department of the Goodman. It was really I don't know, I've, I've, I personally felt pretty honored to like be able to work with these people there at that at that time. I remember we were doing the show, and um, closing weekend was the same weekend as the uh, Assyrian New Year. And um, I think it was, I think it was during our rehearsal process, or maybe slightly before, the big earthquake in Syria and Turkey that devastated that kind of that area happened, and so collectively, we were asked and kind of decided if we wanted to maybe say something at the end of the show, each show, and offer an opportunity for people to donate, and so we had some signs around the the lobby and atra was um kind of our champion spokesperson at the end of the show each night 
and would make you know as after we finished taking a bow would make a little statement to the audience about that and uh and the closing weekend she started mentioning that you know she would make her statement and she started mentioning that it was the syrian new year and she would say happy new year to all the syrians and it was always awesome to hear people in the crowd kind of pipe up but literally it was that closing sunday when she said and it's the syrian new year 6,700 some odd years uh, we've been around and now we've finally made it to the stage of the Goodman. Mm-hmm. It was literally that moment. I mean, she'd been saying the Syrian New Year now was, you know, it was awesome. But it was in that moment, I was like, wow, you know. Yeah, this does have some historical weight to it and I, I really did feel honored and privileged to be a part of it with, with everyone else who was. I said this to you earlier too, but I think one of the most memorable parts of that play for me was before any of you even stepped on stage as we were waiting for the play to start there was a whole playlist of um middle eastern songs being played and then a linda george song came on (laughs) and like our whole row was like whoa this is kind of incredible um and the play opens with everyone dancing which where else can you see that Um, and that sort of level of recognizing what's happening and like identifying with what's happening it's what we see in every wedding and and a syrian party and to be able to see it at the stage of a theater like the goodman Uh, yeah um i think that meant something for every assyrian in that room Uh. um which is incredible what's next for you you know, next, I, you caught me in a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm retooling, you okay. know. <laughs> I actually was going to ask, like, what do you do between shows? Like, how do you sharpen your toolbox mm. or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you hone in your craft when you're in between shows? There's a little bit of a decompression time, mm. for sure. Just to kind of, like, your body was just, like, doing something pretty consistently for you know, physically and emotionally for, I don't know, a couple months. And so it just stopped. And so there's always a little bit of a, a little bit of a decompression time. I, I just listened to the Assyrian podcast about, I think her name is Stephanie, who she's into the body work oh, yes. and stored trauma. And yeah. man, I think, I, I definitely think there's something to that for sure. So like, part of it is like, just, just like tapping back into mm. who you are, not, and not, that thing you were just doing um, for a while. It's always different how to do that every time anyway. There's some similarities, but then just kind of like taking a look around and, and seeing, all right, uh, where, you know, what what am I interested in right now? You know, I haven't been thinking about this stuff in a while. I haven't been thinking about a lot of things <laughs> in a while. What do I need to get caught up on? But in terms of staying staying sharp, I, I do like to take classes for sure when I have the opportunity. There's a great instructor that I like working with here in Detroit, and we kind of speak the same language. And, you know, when I've got the opportunity to work with her and I've had her kind of help coach me up a little bit for a role before, I will do that for sure. You know, I, I do love taking an acting class. Technology has offered a lot of other ways that you can kind of meet with other acting coaches and or 
casting directors who are maybe giving a workshop or something like that, something more business-oriented. So always trying to stay on top of something in that regard, kind of keeping the ball moving because I think momentum is like a serious thing and being being stagnant is like almost worse than moving backwards. Yeah. There's a thing I sometimes experience when I've read a good book, just like a book hangover. Like I don't want to pick up another book <laughs> because I'm still thinking about the story I just finished. And you talked about decompressing after you're done with the show, but are there any characters that you feel like will forever stay with you and you can't really like forget what it felt like to play them? Oh, man. Oh, man. Probably all of them stay with me, and I, I probably want to forget all of them. <laughs> or is the decompressing just mm. the point of, I'm, I'm actually done with you, <laughs> whoever you are, character? You know, I, I, think, I think that's probably it to some degree. Mm-hmm. Or at least that you say that, I say that to myself. Yeah. And try to get back to some semblance of normalcy uh-huh. and whatever my baseline homeostasis yeah, was sure. beforehand because i think the thing is they're all you you know mm-hmm. i think that's the i think that's the thing the context changes mm-hmm. the situations change the i can put on a eye patch and a peg leg and an accent or whatever but like still i'm processing mm-hmm. that situation and that whatever it's still going to be like my sense of truth my sense of humor my sense of my interpretation mm-hmm. of the situation, my interpretation of whatever that character's been through and how he's dealing with this moment. It's all... So I think I think they're all me. You've listened to enough of our episodes, I think, to know that we always like to <laughs> end a conversation by saying, if you had one thing to say to everyone listening, what would it be? Yeah, I, I think it would just be the one, one thing... That I would say to everybody is I am of the belief that that the world like definitely needs uh, more artists and and I think it's something everybody is really capable of and in in their their own way. I mean I kind of think that's the the beauty of art and um, expression. I think it's daring to, to to be an artist and to and to dare to express yourself in any kind of way and put yourself out there, but. In, in in any kind of medium and and I, I think there are just many different ways to to do that but I think that type of expression and that type of uh, vulnerability and that type of like courage I, I just think it opens up your humanity and your empathy and your sympathy and your understanding somehow along the way like I don't know artists kind of got kicked to the side or something like that or devalued maybe I don't I don't know but uh, I, I, I think they're finding finding the art uh, within your own life is like one of the most valuable things you could offer to to humanity that's it for this season we're taking a break for the summer and we'll be back in the fall with lots of new exciting episodes Don't forget to catch up and stay in touch. We'll be back soon.